from barrister to Baptist minister. Stay tuned for a masterclass in reading the Apostle Paul as I interview Phil Fellows on this week's Zonecast. You're listening to The Zonecast, alive in the Word. Welcome to this week's episode of The Zonecast, the show where we explore God's living and active word together every week in conversation with some really brilliant guests and in dialogue with our equally brilliant listeners. Thanks to those of you who've already been in touch. So many people really appreciated last week's interview with Gareth and enjoyed hearing his story and his passion for the gospel. And if you missed it, you can catch up at thezonecast.com or through your podcast provider. Thanks particularly to Rob, who got in touch to say he's been working through Romans with a bunch of guys and they've continued into lockdown using Zoom. Really well done for that. And this podcast, Rob says, has come at a really good time. So thanks for that encouragement and do keep in touch. We'll actually be sharing more of your feedback and answering some of the questions that have come in at the end of next week's episode. So keep listening. And you can get in touch by emailing mark at thezonecast.com or you can find us on Facebook. We'd love to hear from you. But today's episode is slightly different to normal and promises to be a real firecracker of a show. It's the first of two parts looking at the second half of Romans chapter one. And Phil, who's our guest, will be helping us to get to grips with Paul's writing, his argument here, and receive a challenging message for ourselves. So let's get right into today's episode. Before I introduce Phil, I'm going to read Romans chapter 1, verses 18 to 32. So you're going to want to grab a Bible if you have one to hand. I'm reading from the New International Version. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Since what may be known about God is plain to them, because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities... His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so that people are without excuse. For though they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like a mortal human being and birds and animals and reptiles. Therefore, God gave them over in their sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served created things rather than the creator who is forever praised. Amen. Because of this, God gave them over to shameful lusts. Even their women exchanged unnatural, natural sexual relations for unnatural ones. In the same way, the men also abandoned natural relationships with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. Men committed shameful acts with other men and received in themselves the due penalty for their error. Furthermore, just as they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, so God gave them over to a depraved mind so that they do not do what ought to be done. They have become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed and depravity. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit and malice. They are gossips, slanderers, God-haters, insolent, arrogant, and boastful. 
They invent ways of doing evil. They disobey their parents. They have no understanding, no fidelity, no love, no mercy. Although they know God's righteous decree that those who do such things deserve death, they not only continue to do these very things, but also approve of those who practice them. Let's just pray. Father, thank you for your word, which inspires, teaches, rebukes, corrects, trains in righteousness, equipping us for every good work. Speak it into our hearts. Today I'm joined by Phil Fellows, pastor of Hersham Baptist Church. Phil's also presently engaged in postgraduate studies at Cliff College in Derbyshire, specializing in the theology of John Wesley and also charismatic and Pentecostal theology. In fact, Phil's had a number of academic papers published, but he's also got a blog called Living God, which is really fantastic. And I'll provide a link to it in the show notes today. Hi, Phil. Great to have you with us. Hi, Mark. It's really good to be with you. Now, Phil, we uh, met at Spurgeon's College. We studied theology together. And I was always a bit fascinated, actually, about your background because you were a barrister. Yeah. And now you're a Baptist minister. How did that happen? Tell us your story. Sure. Um, I uh, was a commercial barrister, so I specialised in commercial law and real property. So that's disputes about land and insurance law. And I worked as a barrister for either five or six years, depending on how you calculate it. Uh, And I was doing very well. I was based in London with my wife, who is a criminal barrister, was a criminal barrister. Uh, We began to be involved in setting up the youth work at our church, which was a, a Baptist church in East London in Forest Gate. This was before the 2012 Olympics, so everything was um, quite uh, squalid. Uh, I think at that point Newham, where we were living, was the third poorest borough in the country. But we were very happy there, and we were running the youth work for a group of uh, kids setting up uh, stuff for teenagers in the church. And over time, what became apparent was that they needed more input. They needed people who could regularly be there. And if you're a commercial barrister or a criminal barrister, you can't commit to ever being anywhere on any given night of the week because you might always be sent somewhere else in the uh, country or indeed in Europe. Uh, So my wife, for example, would get instructions at six o'clock one night and she might be heading off to Paderborn in Germany the next day um, to do military uh, tribunals. It was that kind of life. And it was uh, exciting and uh, well remunerated for me, at least not for her. But you could never commit to anything. And so we, we had our, our children, we had twin boys, and we began to pray about what it was we wanted to do. Heather couldn't afford to go back to working as a barrister. She was losing money at that point because junior criminal barristers do lose money hand over fist for the first few years of their practice. And we just couldn't afford it. And at the same time, we had a real sense that actually we, what we really wanted to be doing was something in the church. We wanted to be able to commit to doing something in the church. And so we started praying and talking about what it was that we should be doing. Being a pastor for me or for my wife never really entered our minds until eventually we went and spoke to our pastor at the time. And he said, have you thought about becoming a pastor? And I said, no. And he said, well, do you want to go to Spurgeon's to talk to my Oaks tutors? And the truth was I didn't. I had no real interest in it at all. But because we respected Bruce, who was our pastor, we went to Spurgeon's to speak to the then admissions tutor, which was Graham Watts. And 
we came back from Spurgeon's and began praying and fasting occasionally about what it was that God wanted us to do. And then eventually my wife turned to me and said, I don't know why we keep on praying together. We both know what it is we should do. We should just get on and do it. And that was to go to Spurgeon's and for me to train to be a pastor. Um, and so we went to Spurgeon's and uh, I went to Spurgeon's and we every moment of the admissions process and the calling process, we were always there on the last day for everything. So people kept telling us, you're never going to get through this year. And we said, well, we think God wants us to go this year. So we'll just keep on going and we'll see where the process takes us. And they would always extend the deadline so that we could get in uh, or allow us in on the last day. And they said to us, you can't do college-based training. You can't come as a full-time undergraduate student. I already had a law degree, so there was no funding available for me. And I had two children, so I couldn't just pack everything in and go back to university. Um, so they said, well, we, do, we run this thing called church-based training, and uh, we've got this perfect church for you. We think it'd be ideal for you. We said, that's great. What makes it the perfect church for us? And uh, Linda, who was the... Uh, a tutor in charge of placing students said well it's the only church we have available so it is by definition the perfect church for you and uh, we we went and it was um, in a place we never heard of Hersham we nearly went down the road to Horsham uh, I just assumed it was a misprint I'd never heard of Hersham and I'd driven past Horsham a few times and then I did that thing that you should do on the night before an interview which is find out a bit about the people you're being interviewed by and put in Hersham on the assumption that it might be right. And it turned out this place actually existed. And uh, so we, we came to Hersham and were interviewed. And the church at that point was very elderly and probably uh, on track to close. That was the previous minister's view. It was on track to close by last year, actually, because it was just shrinking and the congregation was getting older. And it didn't have a creche or anything like that. My children had to stay in the foyer next to the road, uh, for the first few months while we tried to sort something out. And yet we felt that God had called us here and it was really difficult. But over the following three years, we felt a call to stay in the village and try and replant the church. And that's what we've been doing for the last five years. What a great testimony of God's faithfulness and your willingness to pursue the call he had on your lives. Now, I'm interested in your legal experience. How mm. does that affect the way you read scripture and how does it help you to understand Paul? Yeah, so that's a really good question. Um, I nearly didn't want to become a lawyer because of the Bible. Uh, every time I read uh, the Gospels, all I could see when I read it through was Jesus saying, woe to you lawyers. And uh, so I, 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 nearly, I, nearly, I nearly packed in my, uh, my law degree and uh, didn't go through with it. But I'm pleased that I did. It, I think it's not so much necessarily a legal training, but I think some sort of training in analytical thought, in, in, in approaching and reading documents well, really does help with reading Paul. Uh, when we read Paul, I think one of the big mistakes that we make is that we dive into the detail too quickly. Whenever you read a document, whenever you read an argument, and Paul's letters are largely... Certainly the, the, the majority of his letters are largely arguments that he's presenting to a church. I don't mean arguments in the sense of being argumentative. What I mean is he's arguing for a particular view of Jesus and he's arguing that therefore you ought to behave in a certain way. And that, that's, that's really what a sermon is as well. A sermon is an explanation of what scripture means, which then leads to a particular view of how people should behave. 
So this is what God has said, therefore you should do this. And that's what we call an argument. That's what a lawyer describes as an argument. And when we read Paul, we dive into the details, the individual verses of what he's saying, without seeing the big picture of his argument. And I think being a lawyer does help you to come to someone like Paul's writings and say, actually, first of all, I want to understand what is it you're arguing for here? What is the big pick? What is the big point you're making? The big point you're making. And then I want to understand each of the smaller points you're making. And then I'm going to understand how you get to them. When you do it that way, when you understand where Paul's trying to get to, you can understand the steps he takes on the journey. And I think sometimes when we approach Paul without doing it that way round, when we approach Paul in a sense from the inside out rather than the outside in, we end up reaching a different destination from the one Paul set out for. So if you can imagine, we end up in Falkirk and he's in Cornwall. And the answer was that we misunderstood some of the steps he took along the way. Whereas if we stopped at the beginning and said, well, we ought to be heading towards Cornwall, that would have guided us as to what he meant when he was giving directions along the way. And, and I think um, Romans is a, is a classic, is a classic uh, example of this. That, that Paul in Romans is arguing for a big picture of why both Jews and Gentiles are reconciled to God through faith in Christ. And her faith for Paul isn't simply belief, it's trust which is manifested in obedience. So you find that right at the beginning. Uh, I'm sure that you've dealt with this on your previous podcast, but that, that Paul speaks about the obedience of faith. P- faith for Paul is an active thing. And he's arguing that there, that there is no division between the Jews and the Gentiles in the church in Rome because of this. And actually, that argument reaches its climax in Romans 11 and is then worked out in detail in how they should live in Romans 12 onwards. I'm caricaturing a little bit. But, but the kind of big picture, that's the big picture argument. So if you ever end up in Romans with Paul arguing for something other than A, people are able to respond to Christ in faith and B, that that is therefore what everyone must do. You, you've, got, you've taken a wrong turn. You're heading towards Falkirk rather than Cornwall. And that's an example of, um, it's not necessarily a legal way of reading it, but it's a way of reading Paul and a way of reading uh, these arguments he's making that takes account of what he's trying to contend for. I know that we're going to talk today about uh, Romans 1 and verses 18 to 32. The, the key to reading those verses well, and I don't want to preempt our discussion too much, but the key to reading those verses well is to, is to look at verse two, is chapter 2, verse 1. So we split, we split the letter up into chapters because we need a reference system. We've got to be able to find things. But then we let the chapters limit our thought. We let the chapters limit how we read the letter. And actually, commentaries don't help with this. Because they need to break the text down, they do it. And so they, they end up breaking the link between ideas that are actually connected. So chapter 2, verse 1 says, Therefore, you have no excuse. I'm reading from the ESV. Therefore, you have no excuse, every, O oh man, every one of you who judges. So when we dive into our conversation about Romans 1, verses 18 through to 32 in a moment, we need to realise that the destination Paul is heading to is that judging others is wrong. Therefore, you have no excuse, you who judge others. Right. 
Paul is not, for example, in Romans 1, writing to condemn any group and exonerate any other group. What he's saying is that we, the reader, need to repent. Therefore, we are without excuse. And if we break that chain of arguments, then we end up arguing that Paul is condemning this group or that group or this action or that action, when actually Paul is saying, no, all are without excuse. The, 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 the weight of his argument up until this point is that we should be self-critical. Uh, and we're going to dive into how he gets there and how he makes that argument in a moment. But you can see how starting from the outside, the big argument he's making, and then working inwards actually helps us to start to understand the specific things he's saying better than if we just started, a bit, started with the nuance and then worked outwards. That's really helpful, Phil, because I think many see the passage we're going to be looking at today in Romans 1 as a challenging passage. And you've given us some wider context there to help correctly apply it and understand it. Um, a really good roadmap. So hopefully we can end up in Cornwall. Uh, um, but if you're listening from Falkirk, it's really nothing personal. God loves Falkirk, too. Interestingly, Phil, in your blog, you often tackle passages of Scripture that others might shy away from because perhaps they're unsure how to handle them. Do you have any advice on how listeners might approach seemingly challenging passages of Scripture? Yeah, well, let's stick with Paul's letters for a minute and, and indeed any of the, the New Testament epistles because how you read different uh, genres of Scripture is you have to treat them differently. But let's stick with Paul for a minute. Uh, and, and the other New Testament uh, letter writers. The first key to being able to read these letters well is to read them, right? I, I'm, not, I'm not trying to be funny, uh, but you wouldn't start a reading any other form of letter or any other form of email and begin by reading the opening paragraph, not reading any of the rest of it, and then saying, well, let me try and work out what this paragraph means in isolation from everything else that's been said in this letter. Right? It would just be nonsense. Right? When you get a birthday card, the first thing you do is read, Dear Phil, brilliant, it's addressed to me. Happy birthday, it must be my birthday. And then love from Mark. Oh, great, it's from Mark. Right? You don't start by saying, Dear Phil, and not read any of the rest of the card and try and work out what's going on with it. Right? it that, let's give an example of a card uh, that's abusive about my age. Right? Okay. I, I open up your birthday card. It says, Dear Phil, you're 102 and you look like a monkey, right? I might, if I, if I, if I stop reading there, I am going to have a very different feel for what this, is this a hate letter? Is this somebody who I've wronged? Perhaps, you know, we could go engage in mirror reading and, and try and work out what I've done to you to so offend you. But then... Uh, we read on and it says, happy birthday with all my love from Mark, missing you loads. OK, and we think, oh, right, it's a joke. My point is you read it. When we dive into Paul and into uh, John later and Peter and the others, what we tend to do is we read the first paragraph and then we stop and we say, what did that mean? And then we read the second paragraph and then we, read, we say, oh, what did that mean? And the answer is, if you want to understand what it means, read the whole thing. So the first thing, and, and I think the thing that would do more for people's understanding of Paul than anything else, is to sit and to read the whole letter in one go. Or if you can't do that because um, it's very long, so Romans, I know that you've got, I saw that you posted 
uh, on your Facebook feed, uh, Andrew Wilson's excellent narration of Romans. I tend to do this in church, actually. I, I, I stole the idea from Andrew that uh, I will read, I will preach a whole letter from Paul before we dive into the detail. So the first sermon in a series will be me preaching as if I were Paul. And that's the whole sermon, pretty much, with a, with a top and tail. Um, it is transformative for how you understand the letter, because then you get the big picture of what he's saying. So my first advice for reading Paul well is to read Paul. Don't get commentaries out. Don't get uh, your, your Strong's Concordance out. Don't dive into it until you've read the whole thing. And when you've read the whole thing, what you'll find is that eight out of ten things Paul says are obvious. It's, that is to say, it's easy to understand what he's saying. Actually, Romans 1 is, is pretty easy to understand, right? Difficult to do, but very easy to understand. Uh, people who, uh, let's pick, pick a verse at random, uh, verse 29. Uh, they were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They're full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They're gossips, right? Is that difficult to understand? No, right? Don't gossip. Don't murder. Don't be full of envy. Don't be full of strife, right? It's not difficult to understand what Paul's saying. It's difficult to do, right? So when you read the whole of Paul in context, you'll find that 80% of what he says is actually perfectly intelligible to anybody. The next 10% will come if you start to dig into it in a bit more detail. They, oh, I didn't understand quite what he was talking about there. Why is he talking about idol worship earlier on in the, in the thing? And that's where commentaries can come, can come from, uh, come, come to be helpful. And if you want to start to dig in, I would suggest getting a good commentary. Now, I know there'll be some listeners hearing this who are familiar with commentaries and others who maybe have never used a commentary, uh, but commentaries are a rich resource and, and give you a kind of an exposition verse by verse of a text with all kinds of useful background information, historical information, things about the original languages, and there's many different, um, different commentaries out there with different depths, and we'll probably speak a bit more detail about that on another show. But for now, Phil, what what commentaries and resources would you recommend to our listeners? Personally, um, it depends what level you're wanting to dig into it. I personally like Ben Witherington. That's uh, Ben, B-E-N, Witherington, W-I-T-H-E-R-I-N-G-T-O-N. He's written commentaries on almost every uh, book of the New Testament. And I also like the New International Commentary on the New Testament. They're both very good. Um, if you're a pastor and you're listening to this, I've no idea who listens to this except me. So if you're a pastor and you're listening to this, I would really recommend if you can get a copy of the Ancient Christian Commentary on Scripture. Uh, it's available at Olive Tree or on Logos or you can get hard copies. I think they are really, really useful. Really, really useful. Because it gives you a totally different perspective. What Augustine and John Chrysostom see in a passage will be totally different from what a modern commentator sees in it and actually is very helpful sometimes uh, in picking up stuff that we haven't seen before and the other resource that might be helpful is a good study bible so i actually use two i use uh, the esv study bible and i use the orthodox study bible um, and that gives me radically different uh, starting points on scripture right one of them is very reformed more reformed than i am in the way that it, it treats scripture and uh, you 
need to be aware of that. The ESV, if it ever has a chance to uh, pitch high Calvinism, it will. And uh, it's fine, you need to allow for that. But actually, it's a very, very good, 90% of the time, it's a very, very good treatment of the text. And the Orthodox Study Bible comes from a totally different theological tradition. So if they ever have a chance to pitch the church's liturgical life and icons, they will. And if you allow from that, they're very different. So you, you, sort of get, you, start to, you start to hear from different voices and think about what it means. Uh, I, but I, my, my concern with the way that the church and the pastors and the lay people approach Paul is that they start from the commentaries rather than starting from the letter. And actually reading the letter as a whole gives you a feel for it. That's great. And we'll include um, links to all of those resources in the show notes. But yeah, let's get back to the way that people read scripture nowadays, because you speak about reading the whole of Romans as, a, as the best starting point. And, and that's so helpful, but also such an alien concept, perhaps, for many people who aren't used to reading scripture in that way. I know we live in a kind of a fast food generation, don't we? We we want things um, instantly, and and so some people like the kind of bite-sized resources, the the verse for the day kind of approach, which is okay. But we can be in danger, can't we, of plucking a verse out of context, um, the context in which it was written, let alone the whole sweep of scripture, and perhaps we can be misguided in that approach. Yeah, we're basically lazy. Right, we're basically lazy and we've, we're a generation that is lazy and has forgotten how to read. Right? I don't want to be rude, but the, 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 we believe that the Spirit of God illuminates the Scriptures and applies it to our hearts. And that actually, that, that God speaks through the Word of God. That's really important. It's a foundational belief that we have about Scripture, that Scripture is God-breathed, that, that it's how God speaks to us, but he's not going to read it for us. And, and you can't rely on somebody else to read it for you. In the end, if you want to encounter Christ, you're going to have to do it by, by getting into the scriptures and understanding them. And if you want an illustration of that, the, the, the Emmaus Road story is absolutely central. That Jesus, when he's wanting his disciples, his followers to understand the resurrection, unpacks the scriptures for them. He, he, he leads them to actually look at what the Bible says. We live in an age of many, many books, and actually the, that disguises the one book that is the foundation of them all. Yeah, I'm totally with you there. Um, you know, Phil, it's been great because you've really helped us understand the context here in Romans, and we've surveyed the landscape, as it were. We know where we are headed. And so now let's dig into a bit of the detail and there are some verses in this passage that we're looking at that some have a tendency to latch onto, uh, and it can cause quite a bit of debate. Um, for instance, verse 18, which speaks of the wrath of God. And this topic of wrath, I mean, it causes some Christians to get a bit overexcited almost and overemphasize it. Uh, and then on the flip side, you get others who totally deny the existence of God's wrath. But it's, it's right there for us. So yeah. What does Paul mean by the wrath of God? And how would you help someone who's maybe finding this difficult to understand? Yeah, well, let's, let's um, to be unduly uh, uh, following the politician's logic, let me, let me uh, reframe your question. Okay, we, <laughs> we want to understand, first of all, what it is that Paul's arguing here. So he begins um, in... 
verse 17, the, the bookend of, 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 of this passage, uh, by saying that the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Right, and that's really Paul's thesis statement, his, his opening statement of everything else he's going to argue in Romans, which is for justification by faith. Now, faith understood as a dynamic consequence, not only as belief, right? I, I'm not tending to short-circuit any uh, Arminian, Calvinist, uh, Orthodox, Catholic, or divorce the idea of belief from behaviour. I think for Paul, all of those things are intimately related, and everyone from Calvin to Wesley would agree with that. But he's nevertheless arguing for justification by faith in this letter. And in this passage, he's starting to lay the groundwork for why it is we need to be justified at all. So what the problem is that everyone has, and he's doing that to undercut the uh, pride of either non-Jewish or Jewish Christians. As we read through the rest of the letter, I'm doing a lot of work very quickly here that you pick up when you read the rest of the letter, that this is addressed largely to undercut either Jewish ethnic righteousness, the idea that we are righteous and we don't need justification by faith because we are in Moses, or Gentile self-righteousness, that we are able to be justified because we behave well. And he wants to undercut both of those claims. And we, we can see that that is what he's arguing if we look to chapter 2, verse 1, as I've said already. That therefore you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges, for in passing judgment on another you condemn yourself because you, the judge, practice the very same things. Right, so... Paul is making here a universal argument as to why everybody needs to be justified by faith. And he's going to start to unpack that for us. So then as we dive into this passage, how does it work? Well, Paul begins in verses 18 through to 23 with a question that might seem a bit irrelevant to the ethical question he's otherwise addressing. So, we want to start in by saying, well, what behaviours is he condemning here? And Paul starts off by saying, well, I'm not condemning any type of behaviour. I'm going to talk about idolatry. So Paul then begins to talk about a relationship that we have with God. So his ethical question begins with a relational question, which is, do we relate to God as our God and creator or not? And that's what he's talking about in terms of the language of idolatry and of exchange, and this question of exchange is going to become important. So he begins in verses 18 through to 23 with the idea that God reveals himself to us as God, but that instead of worshipping him, we exchange him for other things. We claim to be wise, we become fools, and exchange the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man, or birds, or animals, or creeping things. We place other things instead of God as our objects to be worshipped. Now let's just pause there for a second. That's a fascinating place to start because it's not talking about behaviour or ethics in the way that we want to talk about them. He's not talking about sex, he's not talking about murder, he's not talking about envy or malice, he's talking about worship. And actually for Paul, everything that follows, everything that we do is related to what we worship. We are worshipping beings. We are men and women made in the image of God and designed for relationship with him. 
and that when we reject him, when we exchange him for other things, if you like, when we get the present of Jesus Christ and we take it back to the store and swap it for a PlayStation or a job or uh, our own self-righteousness, when we exchange God for another thing, it changes who we are and leads us to different behaviour. Because we have rejected God. So it's, it, we, uh, the reason I'm labouring this point is because when we come to the question of God's wrath, I think we are always wanting to start with the question, uh, start with the statement, well, why is God angry with me? Um, and Paul is wanting to say, why have you rejected God? And actually those two, changing it round to look at it in that way, totally changes the way that we understand who God is and what his wrath means here. So as Paul's argument progresses, he says, because you exchanged God for other things, because you put something else in place of God, you've ended up behaving in a certain way. Right. You actually become like the things you behave, you, you worship. Right? That's a principle all the way through scripture. You be, the thing that you worship is the thing you become like. And actually, I think that's true. It's not simply a biblical argument. It's fundamentally true. People who are uh, worshipping money become more and more greedy. People for whom sex is a god, people for whom the idea that the, the people I feel attracted to are the most important things in my life, tend to, tend to desire and to practice more and more sex until eventually they become more and more disillusioned with it. It's we become what we worship. We are what we worship. Jamie Smith's series of books are very, very good on this, on cultural liturgies. Uh, and it, that, again, if your uh, listeners are wanting to dig into something of how this works in conversation with St. Augustine, you are what you love from uh, James, Jamie Smith is absolutely penetrating, one of the best analyses of this I've ever come across. They, that actually we choose something else other than God and God then says, well, that's your choice. You can go with it. He actually encourages us down that road. That's the fine. That's what you want to do. Go that way and see where it leads you. And where it leads us to is to exchange God for something else. And then God says, well, I'll hand you over to it. So you get that phrase comes up again and again. Therefore, God gave them up because they exchanged. And again, Paul's building this argument up that each one of us exchanges the truth of God for something else. And therefore, God gives us up to the thing we have exchanged him for. That's the big argument. And he, he explores this through questions of sexual practice in verses 20, uh, 26 and verse 27. And breakdown in relationships, uh, non-sexual relationships in verses 28 to 32. So he has the two big categories of relationships, uh, sex and everything else. And he addresses how this process of exchanging God, us rejecting God and God giving us up, actually then impacts the way that we live with the purpose of saying at the end of this in chapter two, verse one, therefore, no one is without excuse. So therefore, no one has any excuse. No one is entitled to judge anyone else. So let's go back to your original question, right, which was how then do we understand the wrath of God? Well, the wrath of God is God's implacable opposition to those who have rejected him. It's God's willingness to give us up to sever that relationship or at least in part to sever that relationship that he has with us because we have chosen to reject him. To put it another way, the wrath of God is God's giving us what we want. And what we want is to live with other gods, to live as servants of other gods. 
So in a sense, God's wrath is God choosing to allow us to live apart from his love and his light. It's God, I mean, uh, Bill Mounts, the uh, New Testament scholar, puts it this. Uh, it, it, wrath, that's uh, the Greek word orge, signifies God's indignation directed at wrongdoing. Right? That rejection of God and the choice to do other things and to worship other things is met by God with an indignation. So he's, he recognises that this is not right and it's not what we should be doing. And he then says, well, in that case, you, you are permitted to go ahead with it. And indeed, I will facilitate you going ahead with it. I will keep you breathing while you do it because you have chosen to reject me. Uh, again, the, uh, we talked about some of these, these uh, resources. We talked about the Orthodox Study Bible it says the wrath of God is his righteous and holy judgment. It's not a loss of temporal self-control, but the revelation of his divine truth, love and power confronting those who reject him. And we are the ones who choose that wrath. We choose to live in opposition to God. Now, I'm not digging into questions of original sin and original guilt and our ability to choose otherwise. You can invite me back on when you're having a conversation about Romans 9 if you want. I'm happy to do that. But Paul's argument here is that human beings, every single one of us, chooses to reject God and therefore we live with the consequences of that rejection. You know, uh, in Ephesians, Paul talks about being children of wrath. There's that sense that when Paul is talking about wrath and grace, he's talking about which camp do you choose to live in? And I think we need to get real. Uh, we'll come on to the pastoral consequences of some of this, and I know that I'm probably talking for too long, but I do think we need to get real, which is that we, we, we come as late Western Christians and say, isn't it awful that God's so wrathful? And the answer is, well, why then are you choosing to inhabit camp B? Why are you choosing to inhabit the camp which does not honour him as creator, does not honour him as God, does not honour him as redeemer? God's heart is, to, is not to condemn the world, but to save the world. That's what Jesus says in John three seventeen. The Son of Man came to the world not to condemn the world, but that the world might be saved through him. God doesn't choose which camp we want to go into. We choose to live in opposition to God, and then we become angry because God is opposed to us. I think we. I think. I think. I think there's a part, and this is part of the the thing you were asking earlier about being a lawyer. There is a part of me that, as a lawyer, wants to say, "Look, that's just irrational." It's like a child who smashes a toy and then complains that they don't have the toy. And I think we really do need to to deal with this. That God is not going to wink at or say it's okay for us to reject Him and pretend as if we haven't rejected Him. Definitely. Um... And I guess there's a sense in which rather than us throw our hands up and say, oh, isn't the wrath of God terrible? Although, of course, in, in the right sense of the word, it, it definitely is. Um, we should actually look at the things that Paul goes on to describe and say, isn't this terrible that, that God is dishonored in this way, that this idolatry goes on? And we should be have a sense of righteous indignation, but also maybe a sense of indignation that this I, these idolatrous yeah. attitudes creep into our own hearts, too, because, of course, we, are, we do the same things. We're without excuse. Yeah. And look, if you don't think that God's wrath is a good thing, right, if you don't think that God's indignation, his absolute opposition to everything that flows from rejecting him, right, if you can't say that, if you, to put it another way, if you can't stomach the idea of judgment, then I'll tell you what, you go to Auschwitz and tell me why you think that was fine, right, or you go into 1960s and 1950s Southern America and tell me why you think racism was fine. 
or you, t you go and look at the sexual abuse of child slaves across Africa and tell me why you think it's fine. And I, I, I think as, as, as flabby, wet Western Christians, we have got to wise up to the fact that actually the judgment of God is really important. The wrath of God is really important because if God is not opposed to evil, then he is a participant in evil. And I think the big problem we have is we're fine with God being opposed to the evil of other people. But we have a real problem with the idea that God might be opposed to the evil that I do. Or that God might be opposed to my rejection of him. I'm fine with him being opposed to Stalin's rejection of him or Hitler's rejection of him. Or Gladys, who was horrible to me at the school gates, rejection of him. Or my boss's rejection of him, which makes him make me work more hours than I'm entitled to. I'm fine with God being wrathful with that because it's obviously unjust. But when I'm the one who has to cope with that, I have a real problem with it. And actually, we need to stand and say, no, God is love. He is just. He is righteous. And that is why when he is confronted with people who exchange him, the perfect, good and loving God for other things and in turn harm one another. That we need to say, actually, he's right to be indignant of that. Yeah. And Phil... You've touched on this, but when some people think about the wrath of God, they can have some very unhelpful images in their head. Um, you know, the nature of God's judgment is not some kind of medieval torture chamber, is it? Um, but we've been talking about this handing over, this giving over of people that Paul writes about. Yeah. In fact, I know someone who said the most wrathful thing that God could do with a sinful person is to give them what they want. I think we need to understand that. I think we need to understand it. I think we do need to understand that we, we, we misunderstand the judgment of God if we think it's God throwing lightning bolts at people. Right. And I think that, that actually God's judgment is giving us up to the path that we choose that will lead us to destruction. We've talked a lot about good resources. C.S. Lewis is the absolute best on this. There's nobody in Christian history who has written better about this that I've come across at least. And uh, he, he talks about how when you choose sin, eventually the sin is what you become. So he, I mean, this is in his, um, in his masterful books on uh, heaven and hell, uh, the great divorce, and in his introduction to Christianity, mere Christianity, he would talk about the idea that you start off as someone who grumbles, and over time, eventually, you become a grumbler, until eventually all that's left is the grumble. That we choose to reject God, and when we choose to reject God, we choose to reject all that is good and that is loving, and eventually, God's judgment on us is to allow that to happen to allow us to live in opposition to his love and his grace. So when we live in a society now and we say, when is God going to judge? I'm convinced that Western society is actually experiencing the judgment of God now. I'm not talking about coronavirus particularly. I'm talking about the giving over to a mindless and, and death-seeking cult. The way that we treat each other, the way that we do our ethics is, is going to lead to destruction and God is allowing it to happen. This is his judgment. His judgment is not going to be earthquakes or thunderbolts or lightning from the sky. It's going to be saying, you've exchanged me for something else and therefore I allow you to have what you chose. Yeah, those reflections around C.S. Lewis are so helpful uh, for us. And we shouldn't forget, should be that in Romans 2, Paul goes on to speak about how the kindness of God leads us to repentance. Yes. That no matter how embroiled we are in the things that Paul mentions at the end of Romans chapter 1. And that's certainly my story. Um, 
but I think it was N.T. Wright, wasn't it, who expanded on this idea a bit, and he, and he spoke about two directions, essentially, that we can go in. And in one direction, if we accept the image of God in Christ and decide to follow him, um, then we're conformed to that image, and we become fully human as we were created to be fully with God. Yeah. But the other direction... If we exchange the truth about God for a lie, as Romans 1 speaks about, if we turn to other images, then when that's fully grown, it leads us to this place where we we cease to be human yes. at all. Yes, exactly. Um, you know, in any yeah. sense, um, yeah. you know, of the way that God intended humanity to be. There's no shred of humanity left in us. We are inhumane um, and it's a very dark place. Yeah, Absolutely. Now, I'm conscious that when I've been answering your question, I'm focusing on the question of wrath because that's specifically what you asked me about. But we, we, we do want to keep coming back and placing this in the context of saying, A, this is no reason to be judgmental of anybody. Christians should be the least judgmental people around because we understand that this is all of us. right? And, and B, we want to put this in the context that God in his son has stepped in this world not to condemn the world, but that the world might be saved through him. And, and actually, the, the grace of God, God's desire, is not that the world should suffer. God's desire is not that we should suffer. It's that we should, be, we should find healing and forgiveness through Christ and new life through Christ. And actually, that, that offer is open to everyone. And the, and the call is open to everyone. This is not what God wants for us. This is not what God wants. And actually, God's mercy is in, is in not handing us over in its entirety. If God were to hand us over completely and say, you've exchanged me for something else, now I'm going to hand you over to it, we'll see whether the birds or money or sex or any of these other things can sustain your life, each one of us would perish immediately. But God's mercy and grace is in sustaining us and allowing us and treating us in this way in order to lead us to repentance. So John Chrysostom, the great... Uh, doctor of the ancient church, one of the two great voices in ancient Christianity, along with St. Augustine, commented that the wrath of God is always designed to lead us to repentance. It's always designed to lead us to repentance. It's always designed to bring us back. It's never, it's never there in order to condemn at this point, but to, to, to rehabilitate, if I can put it that way. It was hard to cut across the interview because we were in full flow there. But that's where we're going to leave um, the interview for this week, ending part one of the discussion. But we will be picking it up again next time. But before I tell you a bit about what's coming up in next week's episode, let's just pause and pray. Father, we thank you for the truth of your word, which shines like a floodlight into our hearts and our souls and into this world. And... God, we want you to have the first place in our lives and be honoured. Jesus, we want you to receive all of our worship. And God, we pray that we would be conformed to the image of your Son, so that we may be fully with you. And Father, we repent of anything in our lives that has contorted or distorted that image in which we were made and that does not reflect your goodness and your beauty. Um, Lord, help us to turn away from those things and help us not to turn to others in judgment, Lord, but to show your kindness to them, the kindness that leads to repentance. Um, Lord, we pray that you would have mercy on all those who we know and love 
And God, that the convicting truth of your word um, would impact their lives as well. So they may turn to Jesus. For we ask in your name. Amen. Thank you for joining us for this week's episode of The Zonecast with that scintillating interview with Phil. And the good news is there's more to come. Join us next week as we continue with the interview, looking at the second half of Romans chapter 1 as we dig into more of the issues in the text, including that uh, hot topic of sex and sexuality. And remember, all of the details of the resources that Phil mentioned, including his blog, can be found in the show notes. But that just leaves me to thank Phil and to thank you for listening. Please help us to spread the word by sharing the podcast on social media and rating and reviewing us in your podcast provider. But until next time, keep digging into the word and may it dwell in you richly. You've been listening to The Zonecast, brought to you by Willsborough Baptist Church, Ashford. For more information or to get in contact, Find us on Facebook at The Zonecast or visit www.willsboroughbaptist.church.